Pods, City of Parramatta Libraries podcast, and we talk about books and libraries, we talk about everything in between that. Look, um, I'm here today, my name's Catherine, by the way, and I'm here with my co-host, Nissa, Hello. and our special guest, Antonia, is Hello. back. Hi. So look, um, the library's got um, some other really interesting events coming up, and they're important to us. You know, the library ethos is, you know, very much to advance, you know, the rights of people. And International Women's Day is something that is very dear to us. So what we thought we'd do is theme some books around the topic, to kind of, you know, highlight and celebrate this uh, really important event. Because you know what? Half the world is women. And if 50% of women aren't being employed and utilised and realising their potential, well, our societies are suffering, ladies. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Yes. So... Anyway, let's just discuss this because it is such an interesting topic. Yeah, it is. Nissa, tell us about the books. Yeah, okay. So the topic, I was thinking of the title, hashtag each for equal, which is the slogan for this year's International Women's Day. Um, The very first book, yeah, the very first book we'll do is, uh, it's actually a fiction title. It's called A Woman is No Man by Itaf Rum. Uh, published by HarperCollins in March 2019. I think it was a New York Times bestseller. Catherine will be talking about that particular book. Uh The next one we'll look at is called The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls by Mona Altahawi, which was published by Hardy Grant in October 2019. Um, I think so a few may remember Mona from when she visited Australia, I think in November for the Broadside Festival in Melbourne. Which and was a, a bit on Q&A. Q&A. Oh, famously. Famously. Notoriously. <laughs> uh, and the very last one we'll do is called White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hamad. I think we've talked about Ruby Hamad before as well. Okay. That was published by Melbourne University. University Press in September 2019. So the authors we're looking at today are all women of colour and I think that is going to influence um, a little bit of what we're talking about, you know, feminism and, um, you know, inequality, raising awareness against bias, but perhaps from, um, you know, voices that traditionally haven't been heard as much in mm-hmm. the past. Um, so, yeah. Catherine, the very first one, the fiction title, you have been talking about this quite a bit. You're very impressed with A Woman mm-hmm. Is No Man. Let's mm-hmm. discuss that one first. Thanks, Nissa. Look, um, I, I was impressed with this book. Um, now, it's, um, I suppose, it, not controversial. I mean, it, it touches on um, women in a very conservative society and and oppression of those women. But also, you know, it does talk about, you know, the future and uh, the generation that's coming up and the sort of hope for, um, I suppose, a better and more equal uh, future for these girls. But having said that, the... Like the three main main characters are women, Palestinian women. There's um, 17-year-old Isra who has an arranged marriage and wow. goes to Brooklyn in America um, to, um, to live in a very unfamiliar society. And then the second part of the narrative, which alternates, is um, starts, uh, it's set in Brooklyn in 2008, and 18-year-old Drea, is the narrator. So Drea is actually the daughter of Isra, 
it's absolutely compelling. Like I've been reading, uh, you know, I mean, it's been a, um, a bestseller, sure. Um, the Young Author, it's a debut novel. So The Young Author is obviously an Arab-American woman. And, you know, she's obviously writing from some experience, clearly. But she's a born storyteller. I, I read this book in one weekend. I wow. could not put it down. Because there's a mystery at the heart of it, too. Because it starts with um, young the, the family of young uh, Dea, actually. And her grandmother is telling her about uh, what happened to her parents. And that's the mystery. Her parents have passed away. Her grandparents are raising her four, uh, three siblings. Wow. So there's there's four girls in this family. But when, when the narrative switches back to, you know, the arrival of Isra, it, it then sort of recounts in instalments what happens and, you know, how things work out with um, her arranged marriage um, because you know in traditional societies Israel is kind of given away like she's 17 years old she's like a kid mm. and then yeah and she's sort of like you know transplanted into this really alien society so consequently she doesn't really even have a lot to do with the world outside in Brooklyn so in some ways it's a really interesting picture of a very traditional um, Arabic you know, slash Palestinian, I guess, family. And, you know, there's really gendered roles here. Um, the birth of these four daughters is something of a calamity because, you know, once again, you have that situation where in some societies, many societies actually having daughters or too many daughters is, is not really yeah. regarded as a, a celebration. Yeah. And I mean, I know that's changing, which is wonderful. It is. But in this particular time, the pressure that's brought to bear on uh, young Isra is really unbearable. There's some really, I suppose, uh, cluster, um, claustrophobic sort of aspects to the book because it is, you know, set within this really tight knit family. But there's there's lots of. Um, you know, there's lots of other themes that are that are very important that are discussed. So it's a very hopeful book in many ways. Farida, you know, the grandmother, it's so traditional. She pressures her daughters in, you know, young Dea, he's only 18, into selecting a husband straight out of high school. You know, that kind of, you know, traditional kind of um, pattern mm -hmm. um, is, is something that you can see these younger generation girls are going to stand up to and say, look, you know, I really want to go to college or I really want to do something else in my life. And there's another example in this book. That's why I loved it so much. It had all these little twists and turns and it was just a real page turner. So it might sound in some ways like a bit confrontational, but it was a real joy to read. Um, you know, it's fairly simplistic in its, you know, it's, she writes well, um, but, I, but I mean, I liked the way her, her writing was very direct. Um, you know, it was not overly literary, but it really, really, um, like, it's been described, actually, when I've had a look at some reviews, as a real punch in the gut, and that's what it is. It just, like, makes you think, wow, you know, people in the world have to go through a lot of stuff. Yeah. Let's all try and make the lives of, you know, women and girls going forward better and this is an agenda thing. This is for the sake of the men folk in this family who are under enormous pressure 
to conform to their role as a man. And like, for example, the oldest son is meant to be the provider. The second son can go to uni and yet that you know, person might want to be an academic or go to uni himself. So it's, it's unfair for everybody. So this book talks about changing those stereotypes. It actually reminds me of that, um, that argument you're making. Annabelle Crabb, remember in one of the quarterly essays she wrote about men and housework and stuff like that. And the whole reason why she made, she wrote that essay was because she said, well, look, you know, uh, when we help men be um, equal partners, that it actually helps them. Like it's not just a feminist issue like equality. It is an issue that helps men as well. They don't feel as much pressure to conform conform to certain stereotypes in like traditional roles. And this book actually makes that point so well. Things would have worked out so much better for the men in this family. And the good thing is at the end of the book, to some degree, that's kind of reconciled. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of, you, can't you know, spoil it's it. bittersweet. <laughs> it's bittersweet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's, let's just leave Enough from me. Let's <laughs> leave that at that. Okay. Um, the next book we're going to look at is The Seven Necessary Sins for Women, for women and Girls. Okay. So um, Mona El-Tahawi, I, I was exposed to her when I read her first book actually called Headscarves and Hymens. And read it. Even even just the title, you yeah. just go. That's just it packs such a punch, Quite doesn't sure. it? She's yeah. out there. It, but Very. It, pink but, hair, bright pink hair. Yeah. Oh. Well, um, so she's and Mona is an Egyptian American journalist and social commentator, and um, she has very strong views and her. Her views and her voice comes through so powerfully found in this book, The Seven Essays, Sins for Women and Girls. So the seven sins in the book. So the book is, it's it's very readable. I think um, if you are um, sensitive to swear words, I would not recommend this book for you, only because she is, um, she uses a lot of profane language because that is, uh, like she actually makes an argument. One of the sins listed is profanity, actually. Um, so the seven sins are, I should probably start with that. The seven necessary sins for women and girls include anger, attention, profanity, ambition, power, violence, and lust. Uh-huh. The profanity one, I think she has become very She's well known it. for. Uh-huh. Um, and the book, it is littered, I guess, with profanity. But for me, I suppose because that is not something that I am sensitive to, I, by reading that, you can, I, I just, for me, it really adds to how powerfully she's trying to make her message and how how authentic she is about that. She is not trying to sugarcoat it or come at it in a very polite sort of way. She's like, no, this is how I feel. You can feel her literal like rage coming through, mm. righteous anger. I think she would she would mm. um, probably call it. Uh, and uh, for that, I think it makes a, the book very readable for me. But I can understand for some people, if that is something that they're not comfortable with, a lot of profanity in uh, reading. And there are a lot of people out there, you know, with all sorts of, I think, books that we have in the library, I would probably not recommend this for them. So just that's a that's probably a friendly warning to people. Yeah, disclaimer. And and the other thing is that that female or feminine anger is not regarded as Resma Sujani says is nice and polite. Exactly. And that's a whole other separate issue, which is probably why she's making that point where her point is that she has a right to her anger, which is one of the sins. She has a right to her profanity because that is her true self, Um, which is, yeah, something that I don't disagree with. But I just think there are some people out there for whom I think getting to the crux of her argument by wading through all of that might be a little bit too hard. Uh Um, So... 
Yeah, so her um, arguments are, well, there's a lot of personal issues she raises in it, like how she was shaped as a feminist, her background. Um, you know, she lived in the UK, she lived in Saudi Arabia, and that really, really shaped her. And the book is full of these very readable anecdotes from her own personal experience as a journalist. I mean, quite famously, in Tahrir Square in 2011, uh, during the Egyptian Revolution, she was sexually assaulted um, by riot police and had both of her arms broken. So wow. this woman has suffered for the cause. Um, she was also she also launched the hashtag Mosque Me Too movement. She did, which was um, I don't know, can, Antonia. Have you heard of that? So no, I haven't. Yeah, so it's actually pretty interesting. Um, I know I only came to this fairly recently, but um, so you've got the Me Too movement where women are talking about sexual yeah. uh, assault that they have experienced, yeah. yeah, or harassment. She launched the hashtag Mosque Me Too, which focuses on female pilgrims who have suffered sexual abuse, oh. as she did when she okay. went to Mecca um, yeah. for pilgrimage. And that has put her in a very interesting position where you've got um, people on the left or people of colour, uh, you know, sort of attacking her as well because, for example, she's not a huge fan of the Obamas, for example, who are seen by some in the left as, oh, these are, you know, our people. But she's like, well, no, actually, I don't agree with a lot of their statements. Um, for example, I was listening to, um, on Q&A, as we were talking about earlier, when she was on Q&A, that appearance, which I think elicited a lot of complaints uh, back in November. And she was... Yeah, quite... in fact, they, that was pulled from the ABC. Yeah, oh, and then she was talking... <laughs> she was talking about how Michelle Obama... Remember that she had that quote, um, when they go low, we go high or something? Something like that. Do you guys remember? Uh, yep. Yeah. Having so, so she she said her response. She goes, "I don't believe in that." She goes, "If you go low, you better believe I'm coming for you." <laughs> Which, uh, you know what? It's kind of amazing. She said. I mean, I liked what Michelle Obama said, but I also like what she's saying as well. Well, why should she have to take turn the higher yeah. moral ground? Yeah. Why yeah. should she? Yeah. So, and that's why she says she doesn't believe in a lot of civility. And if you look mm. at the YouTube video with the Q and A um, session. Most of the comments are super negative about her and they really attack her. I mean, the usual stuff that certain people do, her appearance, her background, her religion and so forth. But a lot of it really targets her language. Um, the language mm-hmm. that she used that she had to be warned about several times. <laughs> she did, yeah. Um, but I think if you look beyond all of that, um, you see that she feels so powerfully about what she's talking about, like about equality. Uh, for women, for all women, for all genders, uh, people from different sexual orientations as well. Um, And her focus, of course, is women of colour because that is her own particular background. But I think she makes very, very powerful arguments in here. So if you can, um, you know, sort of look beyond the language um, and possibly the strident way, and I don't mean strident in a necessarily like a negative way, if you can look beyond that, there is so much that you can get out of this book. So I think for that it is very readable. Um, it's full of statistics, personal anecdotes, um, stories from all over the world. So it's mm-hmm. it's going beyond that, I guess, the Western lens of looking at these issues um, and coming at it from someone who is off the East and off the West as well. Mm, it's well-researched. And I was really interested in the way that she um, is one of those Arab... Um, uh, Ameri- well, she's an American now, but she's one of those people from the Arab world who doesn't shy away from telling the truth because 
there's like there's a feeling in the, the Muslim world that you know if you talk about things that have happened, such as what happened to her by the Egyptian secret police, yep. well, you're making Muslims look bad. Well, that is, actually, and that's not true. And that's just you're making bad people look bad. That exactly. is actually the, that is actually the argument that was made for the hashtag Mosque Me Too. People are like, well, why would you be feeding into yeah. what uh, people who are going to be anti that religion or racist anyway you're feeding into what they're saying and you're not yeah but she's like no i and i appreciate that she is going at it from both sides she's like no i'm not going to just sit on one side on one Mm. side of the fence and go oh the other side is perfect no there's a lot that people of color minorities have to account for as well in their treatment of women and she doesn't shy away from that and that is something that i think you end up having a little bit more respect for that where she's willing to take a look at her own people from her own background as well as from others so yeah i think Interesting. Really, like a book I'd recommend if you're not squeamish about language. <laughs> so right. the last book, White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hamad. Now, uh-huh. that book, um, it's by an Australian, Ruby Hamad, who writes very well. She's um, she's an Australian of Lebanese Syrian background. She's a journalist as well. Um, we've talked, I think the last book we probably reviewed, which she contributed to was Arab Australian Other, which was super interesting as well. Uh-huh. Um Ruby Hamad's book is also, it has elicited a lot of discussion, I think, Um, but particularly so because it was based on her 2018 Guardian article called How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women Off Culture. Um, That article I didn't realise. I think Antonio and I were reading it just recently. That article, it it went global because apparently a woman i don't know if you read this antonia but a woman in the u.s i think she was an african-american woman she got fired for sharing it around at work i read somewhere yes i read that bit yeah yeah so it's it's it was a pretty powerful argument i think she made in that and then the book is based on that um catherine you said you had just started reading it what's your impression thus far well uh thanks nissa i um I, i was interested in this book because it it really it, it really asks some questions that I hadn't really thought about to tell you the truth. Um, you know, um, as some commentators have said, it it tells us it's important because it you know for what it does point up, which is something I wasn't really thinking about myself. But also, you know, as some commentators have said, for what it's asking of us, you know, um, I think. Um, you know, we reviewed um, books on Indigenous people and Melissa Lukashenko was one of the authors we reviewed in the past. And, um, you know, she actually says that um, if ignorance is bliss, then this book is a shattering of some supremely comfortable white illusions about race and gender in Australia and beyond. And I was sort of really sort of a bit shaken about that. So, you know, we really wanted to ask young Antonia, what was your impression of the article, yeah, because you, I think you read it fairly recently. Yeah, I did. Um, it was very strong. But had you really thought that, you know, there was this like two tiers of feminism? No, I, <laughs> I thought we were all a sisterhood. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought too, Catherine. Until I read the article, no, it was very um, telling and it brought to light a lot of issues I hadn't really thought about growing up in Australia, but also being a person of color. For me, it was very. Um, eye-opening because I have witnessed and experienced some of these issues that were pointed out in the article but you just don't actually realize until somebody brings it forward or brings it to light so it was very 
interesting and I really would like to read the book now. <laughs> did you did you see the YouTube article that was embedded in the uh, um, YouTube video that was embedded in the article? The one, I think it was an American talk show or something? Yeah, I did. That was pretty, I remember hearing yeah. about that from someone. That was pretty powerful, yeah. I think. It was the black lady, black woman of colour, um, actually bringing to light how a white lady was, um, how do I explain this, how she was crying her white tears yeah I guess <laughs> but taking... in, in a live yeah, form and yeah. you could actually see it happen it was very interesting and she kind of pointed it out and the reaction was very um personal I think the lady yeah. took it personally right yeah. yeah that was it was certainly interesting I know there are a lot of uh factors that go into things like that oh, yeah. but it's interesting to see um I guess that particular interpretation yeah. from her like I don't know if I would have picked that up immediately if I'd just seen the video I don't yeah. know about you but seeing the video in the context of the article... That made sense. Yeah, like yeah. It, it's it's an interesting perspective. I mean, oh, yeah. some people may not agree with it, but it was just, I think, a really interesting thing to think yeah. about. And it's, yeah. some of it made sense, for yeah, sure. it did. And it brought to light a lot of what she was talking about in the article, too, just through a 30-second video. So it was yeah. very good. Yeah, it was. Oh. There was, with, um, from the article, because I haven't read the book yet, I'm planning on reading it, definitely. Um, <laughs> there's this quote, um, having a legitimate grievance is no match for the strategic tease of a white damsel in distress whose innocence is taken for granted. And I think mm. that's not to, like, target people of a certain colour. And no. by people oh. of colour, obviously, you it's not okay to target people who are of a paler shade yeah. as well. That is <laughs> yeah. that is definitely not what um, That's the not art... okay. No, no, that is definitely not okay. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because there has been that dominant narrative coming from that particular colour to um, sort of deconstruct what goes around that. Um, oh. And the thing with Ruby Hamad, apparently she said that she actually gets from some white Muslim men, so white Muslim men who usually are converts, who sort of also put her in her or try to put her in her place by saying, oh, you're not really a Muslim or you're like Muslim adjacent as best. <laughs> um, so she has to put up with that as well, which is quite interesting. So that's not just white women. It might be from white men who are from the same religion as her. So there's this weird mix of, you know, um, interesting. you know, racism and sexism, I guess, colliding. And, and what happens when that happens? Like, because oh. you've got women who are vulnerable, people of colour who are vulnerable. Um, but what happens when you've got you know, a group that falls into both categories versus a group that falls into one category. They've both been oppressed. Whose narrative is dominant? All the complexities that go on with it. Um, and I think for so long we've had, um, I suppose, um, feminism has, I mean, so much has been done for feminism by women of colour, but also women from, you know, uh, non, I guess, from white backgrounds, I guess. But perhaps there is, the time is now for more diverse voices to be part of that conversation. I think this is, that book certainly contributes to it, as does the Mona El Tahawi book. And to a certain extent, your mm. um, the novel you discussed as well. So yeah. it's all about calling out inequality and raising awareness against bias, I think. Yeah, absolutely. This is a fabulous book. And um, I mean, just by looking at the... Um, Catherine's yeah. reading it right now, by the way, listeners. <laughs> I think she's distracted. <laughs> Just of looking at the <laughs> chapter titles, ladies, and I'm just thinking, aren't they fantastic chapter yeah. titles? Yeah. You know, like, you know, um, Lou Jezebel's Exotic Orientals and Princess Pocahontas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just sort of something that's completely turned, I think, you know, um, that sort of concept of the his, the sisterhood on its on its head. Yeah, 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 definitely. Read this book, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, look, that's all for us. 
Thank you so much for listening, people. And um, I think we're all going to be listening to that. Sorry, reading that book now. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Having dipped into it, it's like, yeah. (laughs) Me first. So, Antonia, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, on her first appearance. Thank Thank you for that. She'll be back. Oh, Oh, I will be. Definitely. (laughs) Okay, Nissa, so you wrap it up. I will, yeah. Say goodbye. (laughs) So, you can find this podcast on our blog, Para Reads. You can find it on the iTunes podcast app under Parapods or the Podbean app. We'll talk to you next time with a fabulous new episode. Probably we'll be doing one on Harmony Day. That's probably the next one. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Material presented in this podcast is for general information only. Any opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the guest speaker who do not necessarily represent the views of City of Parramatta Council. City of Parramatta Council is not responsible for any injury, loss or damage which you may directly or indirectly suffer in connection with this podcast.